Welcome and thank you for joining us for the Church by the Glades podcast. If you would like more information about Church by the Glades, including service times and directions, visit cbglades.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. Oh, what is up, Church by the Glades? Smart people who choose one o'clock service. Give it up for yourselves choosing the one o'clock experience. Y'all get to honor God and still slept in today. Genius, <laughs> well done. Hey, if you're a guest, my name is David, one of the pastors of Church by the Glaze, and I want to preach on a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. But before I get to it, let me echo the nice announcement, people. A couple of very important things taking place. Uh, this is a busy season, right? It's shopping season and party season. And for students with exams at the end of the semester, it's study academic season. But at CBG, it is Christmas season. Christmas season, we love this time of year. And uh, so we have Christmas services starting at this campus on the 17th. If you've never been part of a Church by the Glades Christmas experience, especially live, they're great online and on TV, but live, they are an ex- remarkable. Don't miss it, be here. The theme this year is Christmas Passport. I love our church is diverse. I love our multicultural, multiracial, and our church is rather international. We've got people who are first or second generation from other places. And so we're gonna kind of leverage that. We're gonna take a little journey around the world uh, this Christmas. And by the way, when we journey at Church by the Glaze, no one's in economy. No one's in coach. This is not Southwestern, right? Everybody's like, the same. no, no. First class experience at Church by the Glades. So the production team is doing something. It's this new tech thing. I don't even know what it is. I don't even understand, but it's gonna be remarkable. So don't miss it, be here. So put your seat backs and your tray tables in their upright position and fasten on your safety belts for a Christmas at Church by the Glades this year. Make sure you're here and make sure you invite somebody, man. Make sure there's invite cards, cool little theme cards. I know we're actually running out because you guys have grabbed them so well this weekend, but if there's still some, please take them. Make sure you grab them next week. And here's the reason why. These, these are the tickets to life change for someone. And you know how it breaks down. You guys do a great job every year. People need God 12 months out of the year. But you invite someone in, say, August or September, they're a little more resistant. But, man, this time of year, people are open. So invite them to our Christmas experience. People that would shoot you down normally might say yes. And I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years that have come to Christ and found freedom and found salvation. They said, you know, I got to church by the glades. Christmas. Someone invited me for Christmas. So right now, if you just kind of prayerfully think through your relationship grid, who's a coworker in the next cubicle, next office, who's a friend at school, who's a nice neighbor who maybe needs God, who's a family member who's without Christ. Hey, online folks, you can use the digital invites, uh, but let's do it. Man, leverage your Facebook. What would the Apostle Paul do with his Instagram or Twitter? Let's get the word out there. Wear the gear, best $5 T-shirt you will ever own. Uh, let us tag your car, but let's go ahead and spread the good. The goal is not to get people to church. The goal is to get people to heaven. And you're the marketing department, so go do it the next few weeks, all right? Get them, man. Invite people right now. Make that prayerful pledge to God. And then also, and this is just for the Christian people in the room or watching, we don't push offerings around here. Like We don't take special offerings every week or every month, but one time a year we do, and this is the time of year. It's called the Greatest Gift Offering when you walk out of this room, if you'd like it, the people in the different tunnels will have this envelope. And this is a special offering we give. And yes, we steward your resources. You trust us, I think, really well. We, we feed orphans in multiple countries. 
We rescue babies from malnutrition in Guatemala. Uh, we feed families whose kids scavenge dumps in Central America. I mean, we do all kinds, we support missionaries all over the world. So this goes to great purposes, but that's not the main reason I think you should give this time of year. If you're a Christian person, you should be generous because you know the reason for the season. Christmas is not about Christmas trees, they're fine, right? Or eggnog, or Santa Claus is awesome, and Rudolph rocks, but it's not about those things first and foremost. It's the birthday of the king, right? It's the king's birthday. And the crazy thing is, one of the ways we celebrate his birthday is we're wonderfully generous with everyone else. Like husbands, I hope you'll be generous with your wife. I hope you buy that woman that you love a really nice gift, a really nice expensive gift. And all the wives loudly said, come on, ladies, I teed it up for you right there, right? Amen. And so be generous. You're going to buy nice things for your kids. You're going to buy some stuff from people you don't even like. You're going to get your secret Santa, somebody you don't even like in the office, you'll buy him something. We're, we're generous. I want to recommend generosity. It's great. But we ignore the birthday boy. It's kind of crazy. We give gifts to everyone else and forget about Jesus or give Jesus kind of like something token, like after the fact, like afterthought. I think he deserves the greatest gift. So here's, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Take one of these and don't drop anything in the offering box today. Take it home and put it somewhere you're gonna see it for the next week. Just put it someplace you pass by all the time, and every time you see it, I want you to breathe this prayer. Say, Lord, what do you want for your birthday? And guys, the same way your wife will say, I don't want anything, but then to drop a bunch of hints for the next week, right? Jesus will start to impress upon you what he wants, and just do as God leads. No more, no less. So I don't put any pressure on you guys to give, but I don't wanna put pressure on you to pray. And you'll find it's actually a joyous thing to give to the Lord. So we call it the greatest gift because I, I don't know. I, I think it's his birthday. He deserves the most generous gift. So whatever you're buying for someone else, I think he should get the best gift. So I'll be transparent, recklessly transparent. Uh, so in our family, whatever we get, any, whatever I get Lisa, one of the kids, the most expensive gift goes to the offering. And uh, back when my kids turned 16, we bought them cars, not new cars, pre-owned, used, kind of old cars. But that was a stretch for us to buy them cars. And we're thinking that the money for the car, we thought, oh my gosh, if we buy Charlie a car, the greatest gift still needs to go to Jesus. And so we did it, and I'm so cheap, Jesus got the greater gift by $1, but still, he got, got the greater, but for us, that was a big thing. So I really, I, I model this, I believe in this. Uh, it is his birthday, and the birthday boy deserves our best and our greatest gift. So if you're a Christian, just pray about that. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about it. Just glad you're here. And we don't push offerings, ask around you before you leave. Okay, all that to get to this. I've really wanted to preach a sermon like this for some time. And if you're watching you know, on TV or watching, because we have people watching all around the world, I think 54 nations, and you're enjoying this busy season and travel and Christmas and World Cup's going on right now. And I'm an American, so I don't fully understand World Cup, but you guys like that kind of stuff. Uh, our churches, our physical campuses are located in Southeast Florida. And this campus is in Coral Springs. We're a little suburb of Greater Fort Lauderdale, Broward County. And the demographic around this church is about 38 to 40% Jewish. It's very diverse, I love down here, but a large Jewish population. And I grew up in South Broward down in Hollywood. I grew up in Hollywood Hills. Yeah, Hollywood. Um, and I went to school in Emerald Hills. And Emerald Hills, I don't know the demographic or stats, but very, very Jewish. I just know based on my friends. My friends in school had names like uh, Richard Grossman and Stevie Freeman, Mitch Berman. Mitch, Mitch is a buddy. Today. Mitch Berman, uh, my homecoming date was lovely Lori Goldstein. 
So uh, my friends were Jewish, and we had such a great relationship. We could ask the other questions. I was like their Christian friend. But they called anyone who wasn't Jewish a Christian. That's not accurate, but they, I was a Christian friend. They'd ask me about Christian stuff. I'd ask them about Jewish things. So I remember asking a question, and they all had the same response. said, hey, what do you guys do for Christmas? I, I don't mean celebrate the birth of Jesus. What, what do you do on December 25th? And almost every one of my Jewish friends had the same answer. Oh, we love Christmas. They said, we love Dece December 25th. We, on December 25th, go eat Chinese <laughs> and then go to a movie. I thought, that is brilliant. How fun is that? Because let's be honest, Christian people, we make Christmas way too much. I mean, way too busy, right? I mean, think about the crazy things we do. We back up to like November and you go to the garage, you bust out all those dusty decorations and guys, it's been three days. Now there's up the outside of your house, decorate the outside, the inside. Then on December 25th, you have this massive meal. We celebrate the coming of Jesus by eating way too much and we eat weird food, we don't eat, we don't eat turkey every day and stuffing every other day or yams, but we do on, on Christmas. And then you have family members over to your house. Well, let's be honest, we love family, but we all have some weird family. Come on, one o'clock, put your hands together if you got some weird people in your family. Yeah! And that person you're clapping about, they come too, they come too. And you've had it happen like, you know, that uncle who drinks too much gets in a fight with a weird cousin, like, oh my gosh, the drama is too much. Actually, Jewish people are smart. We should celebrate Christmas by what? Chinese in a movie. And so because of the demographic, because you may not know this, if you look at the greatest centers of population for Jewish people in the modern world, uh, greatest metropolitan areas, the, the, the greatest population center would be Tel Aviv. I think 2.5 million Jews live in Tel Aviv. Uh, number two, can you guess number two? New York City, just behind Tel Aviv. But Southeast Florida is top five or top six right behind Jerusalem. So in honor of our neighbors, and by the way, I think this is cool. Back in the day, we had actually dozens of Jewish people that called Church by the Glades their home. We no longer have that. We now have hundreds of Jewish people that consider this their, their spiritual family. And I think that's just great. And what an honor it is to be your pastor. So everything I'm doing today, hear this, is with great esteem and admiration and respect for our Jewish neighbors and friends and members of our church family. But I thought it might be fun to kind of walk through the, the history and relationship between biblical Judaism and biblical Christianity. And let me start with this. So here in Southeast Florida, we're all aware of the Jewish holidays. Can I show you the biblical basis of the Jewish holidays? Most of the Jewish holidays go back to the Torah. David was the Torah. That's a Hebrew word that means the law or it's the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. You know those books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So those are the books of Moses or the law, and most of the Jewish uh, celebrations or holidays go back to the Torah. So what's the most important? Well, biblically speaking, probably Passover. Where do you find the biblical reference for Passover? Well, first and foremost, you find it in Exodus chapter 12, but also Leviticus chapter 23. And I'll put these up on the screen so you can see these and reference these later on. But what is Passover all about? Well, bottom line is this. God loves freedom. God loves to emancipate people. And God is so passionate for freedom, he despises any form of bondage. So any form of oppression or tyranny or slavery, no matter in what people group, what generation, what nation, any, any people that enslaves other people, God despises that. And of course, if you know your Hebrew history, the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians for 430 long years. 
that God finally has enough. And he sends a leader named Moses. Y'all know that famous story. And by way of God's power and Moses' leadership, God has those 10 wonders or 10 miracles. If you're the slave master, 10 plagues. But Pharaoh is stubborn and hard-hearted. Nine plagues don't get his attention. He will not let God's people go. So God says, you asked for it. Here comes plague number 10. And plague number 10 was a doozy. It was the death of the firstborn. So how does God protect his people Israel when the death angel is going to come and wipe out all the firstborn? He said, Moses, tell your people to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood around the door. And that way, when the death angel sees the sacrificial blood, he will pass over that house and protect that family. In addition, I want you to provide a sacred symbolic meal, the Passover Seder, and everything as a Jewish family. You ate with your kids. You were teaching. Everything they saw and they tasted, uh, the bitterness of bondage was expressed or the beauty of freedom. And the Passover Seder is still a thing to this day. In fact, you know, Jesus took the Passover Seder and put a new layer of, of, of symbolism over that, and he turned it into the Lord's Supper or communion. But Passover is a very sacred holiday. Uh, what else? Uh, you heard of Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur. Okay, that, that goes back to the Bible as well. Uh, that's found in Leviticus 16, Numbers 29. Uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And, and back in the day, say in the first century, a good Jewish family would spend that day by resting and reflecting and fasting. And they would go to the temple for worship if they could until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is one of the primary Jewish holidays. Uh, in Hebrew, it means the head of the year or the beginning of the year. By the way, anytime I use Hebrew, I'm not that good at Hebrew. If you were here and you got bar mitzvahed, wow, I'm impressed. Hebrew is so, again, it's not left to right. They write it right to left and there's no vowels. If I told you the grade I got in seminary in Hebrew, it'd be embarrassing. Hebrew is tough. But that's what it means in Hebrew, the beginning or the head of the year. It's a day of new beginnings and celebration. It's also found in the scripture, Leviticus 23. It's called the Feast of Trumpets in the Bible, we believe. So those are the main Jewish holidays found in the Torah. But in December, our Jewish friends don't celebrate one of these. They celebrate Hanukkah. And so where's Hanukkah found in the Bible? Well, it's not found in the Bible at all. It's not in the Torah. It's not in the prophets. It's not in any of the 39 books we would call the Old Testament or Hebrew scripture. Where's it come from? This is kind of cool. Stay with me. A little history lesson. Sorry about that in the weekend, but it's a fascinating history. That period between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. Maybe wonder what happened between Malachi and Matthew 400 years. Now, there's no divine revelation, but what's taking place in Hebrew history, it's remarkable because of where Israel is geographically. You think about a map, a map of the world. Like Israel's kind of between North Africa and Asia and Europe. And because of where it's positioned geographically, all those mighty empires in history, when they're battling and fighting each other for supremacy, they kind of march through Israel and take over and trade leadership in Israel. And Israel's oppressed by all these different nations. So Israel's been conquered by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and finally the Greeks defeat the Persians. You all saw the movie The 300. Anybody like that? That's the Greeks versus the, the Persians. And the Greeks sweep through, and a great Greek leader named Alexander the Great expands the Greek empire eastward all the way to the border of India. But Alexander dies at age 32, young cat. And none of his generals had his leadership gifting or skill set. And so that, that massive empire, it fractures into four sections. And these different leaders battle over the years. There's all kinds of civil war and drama. And Israel is right in the middle of this. 
Israel's getting bounced from one leader, Greek leader, to the next, and it goes on all this drama to a guy named, stay with me, Antiochus Epiphanes is in charge of Israel. And Antiochus is a Syrian Greek, and he's a psychopath, a maniacal, egomaniac, crazy person. And he wants to eradicate all worship of the true God. So in Israel, he declares it against the law to read the Torah or go to synagogue or circumcise your children, or worship God in the temple. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes is so passionate with his paganism, he erects a statue to the Greek god Zeus in the temple and sacrifices pigs, unclean swine. And most Jews, because, man, the Greeks have the power, they can keep their head down and just go along with the whole thing. But finally, one old Jewish priest, Mattathias, up in the hills, he just had enough. Instead of taking a knee, he grabs his spear. And he starts going after the Greeks. And the Greeks have all the power, man. They're outmanned, outgunned, the Jews are. But think, uh, guys, think Braveheart. Braveheart back in there, right? This small rebellion begins among the people in the hills. And Mattathias is old, so he dies. But he has some sons. And his sons, guys, they're B.A., man. They're, they're bad. And these sons are all, man, they're jacked and they're strong and courageous. And the best and baddest of the sons is a guy named Judas. Judas. I know we don't name our kids Judas today, but that's why there's a bunch of Judases in the first century. Uh, Jesus had a brother named Judas. There are two disciples named Judas. It comes from this hero, Judas. But Judas had a nickname, Maccabean, Maccabean. And loosely it translates Judas the Hammer. And Judas, I'm telling you, this guy was bad. And Judas the Hammer puts the hammer on the Greeks. And though the Greeks had the supremacy, the Jews won the rebellion and they kick out the Greeks and they have a beautiful, brief season of Jewish autonomy and freedom. And Hanukkah comes from the rededication of the temple. As they purified the temple for eight days, that's the backdrop for Hanukkah. Hanukkah is all about freedom. It's not in the Torah, it's not in the Bible, but it's still really cool, amen? That's where Hanukkah comes from. Was that too much? Was that too much? Was that too much? That's too much. So that's the backdrop. So these are the major Jewish holidays, Passover, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Hanukkah, and may I add, respectfully, Christmas. I will propose Christmas as another Jewish holiday. Why? Well, think about the Christmas story. Mary was Jewish. Joseph, Jewish. Jesus, of course, was Jewish. I'm surprised occasionally I will meet a Christian who does not know Jesus is Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Listen, if the Germans read their Bible in the 1930s, the Holocaust would never have happened. But when people who claim to be Christian don't read their Bible, stupid things happen. Uh, the shepherds were Jewish. Um, the innkeeper implied in the story was Jewish. Uh, Herod the king is kind of Jewish. I propose it's a Jewish story about a Jewish savior, a Jewish baby, a Jewish mom, a Jewish dad in a Jewish city. I think Christmas is kind of Jewish. Stay with me. Here's the heart of the talk I'm so excited about. If you understand the perfect relationship between what I want to call Torah-driven Judaism and biblical Christianity, they're one. They're one. It is seamless. It's amazing. So here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. To, to make my case. Make my case they, they are one. Because in the ancient world, you, you'd see them as one. In the ancient world, um, guess what? Christians were viewed as just a subset of Judaism. For the first decades of the church, the same way you know, today Jews uh, might call themselves Reformed 
or conservative or orthodox. In the Bible, Jews had different subdivisions. I, I call them denominations, probably not the best word, but there were Sadducees in your Bible and Pharisees, another group called the Essenes, the Zealots. Uh, Christians were originally just thought to be another expression of Judaism. Jesus begins his ministry all the time. Speaking where? In the synagogue. His family would journey to the temple for what? The Passover. I mean, he's a good Jewish boy in a Jewish family. It's a Jewish story. So you see this close relationship, how they fit together so wonderfully well. So here's what I want to do. I want to preach to you the Christmas message and never open up the New Testament. I want to teach you the story of Jesus and Christmas. And I'm going to do it just from the Hebrew scripture, just from the first part of your Bible, just from the Hebrew prophets. They say these specific, precise things about the coming Messiah. And by the way, Jesus nails everyone. I want to teach you Christmas and never go to Matthew or Luke. Nowhere in the Gospels. And guess what? I can do it. Let me show you. Let's talk together. Ready? Simple question. Easy one. Lay up right here. Question. Christmas question. Where was Jesus born? Did that stump you one o'clock? You're very careful about it. We're thinking North Pole, maybe North Pole. No, that's Rudolph. One more time. We'll back that up. Where was Jesus born? And the correct answer is, of course, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Jesus was born. Now, of course, we discover that in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. But guess what? 650 years before Jesus was born. If I take you to the Hebrew prophet Micah. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, six centuries before the Bethlehem thing happened. Here, where's it going to happen? It says, the prophet says, but you owe, you owe Bethlehem, Ephratath. That's another name for Bethlehem. You, O Bethlehem, Ephratath, are only a small village among all the people. Oh, that's very important, by the way, that small part, because uh, we're like, well, David, duh. Of course Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You haven't been in church like one time in 10 years. You probably know that part of the story. Yeah, Jesus, that's where Messiahs and saviors are born. Beth, Bethlehem was a tiny, tiny, I wouldn't say even city, town, village. Uh, and think about it, you know, God's a global God. God was not rooting for the U.S. versus Netherlands the other day. He didn't care. Right? He's bigger than all that. And if God's going to send his son to enter the human experience, God, pick a world-class city. Pick Rome. Pick Athens. Pick Alexandria, Egypt. But he chooses not Jerusalem. Bethlehem. Tiny. T obscure. Really? If I make that in contemporary, if I help you understand contextually, it'd be like what happened today. It'd be, but you, oh, Palatka, Florida. Anybody here from Palatka, Florida? Anybody? Woo. Anybody, anybody been to Palatka, Florida? Thank you. It has like one stoplight, a Dairy Queen. That was Bethlehem. So Messiah, Micah, the Jewish Hebrew prophet, says is going to be born from the tiny town but if you think through to Matthew's account, when the Magi show up in Jerusalem, go, hey, we saw the star. It got us this far. King Herod, where's the Messiah going to be born? Herod didn't know, but he asked his scribes. He said, oh, this is easy. Slam dunk. Micah said, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Now, that's just one. One of the many prophecies about the coming of Messiah we find, not in the Christian scripture, not in the New Testament, but in the Hebrew scripture. I'll show you some more. So number one is the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. I'm going to these really quickly. In fact, take notes or just take a picture of the screen with your phone when I finish. Uh, that he be a descendant of Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. So Messiah from all the people groups is not going to be a Roman or a Greek or an Egyptian. He's going to be a Jew, a descendant of Abraham 
Furthermore, there are 12 tribes in Israel. Which of the 12 tribes? The tribe of Judah. Now it's getting more narrow. From what family in the tribe of Judah? From the family of King David. Now, he'll be known by two different uh, titles. Psalm chapter two, he'll be called a king. But in Psalm chapter 110, verse four, he'll be called a priest. Let me unpack this for a moment because this seems to be contradictory. Why? Because yes, uh, kings came from Judah and were precisely from the family of David. Now, not every descendant of David was a king, but he has some descendants who were kings. So guess what? Jesus, being from Judah, he's a king. But the priest came from the tribe of Levi. So how can it be both? Well, if you read the book of Hebrews, Jesus' priesthood does not come from Levi. It comes from Melchizedek. So Jesus is the only person in human history who is both rightly called king and priest. It continues, uh, things as remote as this. He goes by these two titles. He's going to be a Jew. He's going to be from Judah, from the family of King David. Uh, things as, as specific, as random, as the gifts from the Magi described in the book of Psalms. Uh, that his family be forced to flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod, the psychopath, is going to kill all the baby boys trying to assassinate Jesus. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Let me stop and unpack that. Look at all the dots that God has to connect in Jesus' life when he's just a baby has no control over these, right? Predicted by the Hebrew prophets hundreds of years before he was born, all right? So Jesus' family, they're up in the north, but God has to use all this drama to get them to Bethlehem at just the right time. That's red. You can describe that in Luke chapter two. They get to Bethlehem. Jesus is born in the place Micah said, Messiah be born in Bethlehem. Then they have to somehow get to Egypt. So God allows crazy Herod to try to assassinate Jesus. He wants Joseph. They take the family to Egypt. But when he wants to come back, stay with me, he wants to come back to Bethlehem, but Herod's son Archelaus is there. He's as crazy as an old man, so he can't go there, so he has to bounce where? To Galilee, just the way the prophet said. And he grows up in Galilee in the north and begins his ministry in Galilee, and then he has to die in Jerusalem. The funnel has narrowed. One people group, the Jews. One tribe, Judah. One family, David. Born in Bethlehem, called both a king and rightly called a priest. Have to go to Egypt return to Galilee, grow up in Galilee, and die in Jerusalem. Right now, the odds this could happen randomly in any person's one life are mathematically impossible. If you're a sports fan, it'd be like me predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl four months ago and giving you the score of every single NFL game and getting everyone right. Continues. He'd have a ministry of miracles. He died by being pierced. In fact, speaking of his death, Read Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22. Sometimes, say it with me. Read Psalm 22. Say it like, Psalm 22. It describes someone dying on a cross in perfect, graphic, gory detail. Even describes the words that Jesus would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Describes him being pierced in his side, pierced in his hands and his feet. Describes the Romans gambling for his garment. All these details happen, and Jesus can't control these things. He doesn't control how he's being executed. The crazy thing is not just something, a prediction made a 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. It happens 700 years before crucifixion was invented by the Romans as a means of executing people. I hope you understand what I'm saying. It'd be like someone in the Middle Ages writing down something describing someone dying in the electric chair before people have discovered electricity. I'm telling you, the evidence is overwhelming in the Hebrew scripture that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is, the Son, the Savior, and the Messiah. Now, if you're still a skeptic, here's the Christmas thing I, I know you stumble over. Virgin birth. Virgin birth, right? Why do you stumble on that? Because it never happens. 
Like, Dave, come on, virgin birth. We're all grown-ups here. I'm sure it's just a creative story that Mary came up with because there was this good-looking Roman soldier and virgin birth, right? What if I could show you, not in the Christian scripture, but in the Hebrew text, that the most honored and esteemed Hebrew prophet Isaiah said that's exactly the way Messiah would enter the world. We're finally at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 on the screen right now. I've highlighted two words. Here we go, ready? Look the, look the virgin will. Okay, anybody have an issue with that? You understand, biology 101, virgins don't conceive. Virgins can do lots of things, but virgins can't have babies, amen? Did I lose you there? Did, I, did your mom and dad not have that talk with you back when you were a kid about the birds and the bees, right? Right, mammals like human beings do not practice something called asexual reproduction. It takes, it takes two. But the, not a Christian prophet. The Hebrew prophet said the way Messiah is going to enter the world, a virgin will conceive a child and give birth to a son. We're going to call him Emmanuel, and I'll translate that, uh, which means God is with us. 700 years before Bethlehem, Isaiah said when Messiah enters the scene, he'll be born of a virgin. When I look at all this, when I look at this evidence right here, I see how outstanding, I look at, my gosh, Bethlehem, tribe of Judah, a priest and a king, a ministry of miracles, the way he's going to die in virgin birth. It, I, it makes me want to look at you and say, happy Jewish Christmas. And let me kind of close with this thought. In case you're going, wow, I didn't know that Christmas was such a Jewish story. It is a Jewish story. Got a Jewish mom and a Jewish dad and a Jewish baby and Jewish shepherds and a Jewish city and a Jewish state, Judah. Got all these Jewish things, Jewish prophecies. And by the way, I just shared like a half dozen, a dozen of the hundreds of prophecies. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. But it's not just the Christmas story. It's every story where the hero of the story is a Hebrew, not just Old Testament. Old Testament we expect. Old Testament's the story primarily of the Jews since chapter 11 of Genesis, how God worked redemptively through the Jewish nation. I'm telling the New Testament, the Christian part of the Bible, our greatest heroes are all Jewish Christians. And if you're like me, I'm not a Jewish Christian. I'm what you call a non-Jewish or a Gentile Christian. It's remarkable how many of these people, man, that is, is incredible how many of these Jewish heroes are in your New Testament. In fact, I, I made a list, and I'll put them on the screen. It's overwhelming. How many? Uh, I can just start with the Christmas story. Of course, Jesus was a Jew, and Mary was a Jew, and Joseph was a Jew, and other people in that great story, Elizabeth and Zechariah and the shepherds were Jews. Uh, Eleven disciples on the screen right now. Of course, all the disciples, whether it's Peter or James or John, they are Jews. And by the way, I just put 11. I left out one. I left, I left out Judas because he ain't a hero, right? He's a heel, left him out. And by the way, every once in a while, you hear like somebody, it's racist, they'll say, uh, don't you know that the Jews killed Jesus? I'm like, that's such a dumb, it's ignorant to say. It's a Jewish story. Yeah, one of the bad guys was a Jew, but the hero is a Jew, and all the other heroes are Jew. And technically speaking, the Romans are the ones that killed Jesus. It's, a, it's like saying, Americans shot Abraham Lincoln. Well, duh, it's an American story. It's the same kind of thing. Uh, so I leave Judas out, but I, I could keep going. Not just the disciples. I, I wrote on my list things like, uh, uh, people like John Mark and the Apostle Paul, all Jewish believers, Barnabas, Silas, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, Joseph of Arimathea, and, uh, Nicodemus, Lydia, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, James, Jude, Jesus' two half-brothers, uh, Philemon, Onesimus, Simeon, Anna, John the Baptist, Stephen, Philip, Ananias, Jairus, Timothy. 
all Jewish Christ followers, the greatest heroes of our faith, the greatest Christians in history, all Jews, all Jews. And maybe you're like me and you're not a Jew. You're like, well, David, are there any like Gentile Christian heroes in the Bible? A few, a few. None are major players. I'll give you the list. Here you right, list, boom, right there. Here's the list. That's it. That's it, Luke, 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 who wrote the third God. We think, by the way, we're not sure. We think he was a Gentile. There's a centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Don't know his name, but he has remarkable faith. Jesus praises his faith. There's an Ethiopian man from, from Africa. He's remarkable. He probably wanted to become a Jew, but because of a physical issue, he could not be circumcised, and he chooses faith. Uh, the woman at the well is Samaritan, so that's not truly Jewish. It's close. Uh, the Syrophoenician woman, I think that's off the top of my head, Mark chapter 7. She was not a Jew, but again, she was not easily offended, had remarkable faith in Christ, and Christ praised her as well. Uh, Cornelius. Cornelius is the first non-Jew. I think it happens in chapter 10 of Acts. It takes that long for a non-Jew to choose Messiah Jesus by faith. It's been decades. All the first Christians are Jewish Christians. And finally, Timothy shows up on both lists because he's half Greek and half Jewish. So why, why exhaustively belabor this? A couple of reasons. I see so many weird attitudes from Christians towards Jews I want to address. Racism is always wicked and sinful. Every time. Every time. I know some of us have been hurt, wounded, and so we want to paint another people group with a broad brush and just make generalizations. Just don't do that, man. I, in fact, I'll just say this. I don't have a Bible verse for this. This is my opinion, and I, I might be wrong, but I'm not. Um, I think the most egregious words in the ears of a holy God is a racial slur. I mean, compared to like a cuss word. Cuss words aren't cool either, but think about most cuss words or swear words. They're about body parts or body functions. Uh, uh, a racial slur is about the way God made somebody. It's about their ethnicity or the color of their skin. I think that way offends God more than talking about a body part or a body function. It's sinful. But if you're like me and you're a Gentile Christ follower, to be a racist towards Jews, to be anti-Semitic, is not just sinful, it's kind of stupid, isn't it? It's incredibly ignorant because my king is a Jewish rabbi and his mama was a good Jewish woman and his earthly father, a good Jewish man. And all those disciples were Jews. And the apostle Paul was a Jew, right? And Barnabas was a Jew. And, and oh my God, they're all Jews. They're all Jews, so I, it, it makes no sense. So listen, if that ever creeps into your heart, crucify it. That does not come from God. In fact, I'll, I'll say this too, because every once in a while, because we have so many Jews that attend our church, you meet, every once in a while, I meet a Jew who's come to our church and they kind of struggle about choosing to follow Christ. And I've heard him phrase it to me, David, I want to, I think I should, but I have this history and this legacy in my life I'm very proud of. And they'll say it like this, the word they'll say, I'm just not sure about converting. And look, I'm not saying I'm an expert in Judaism. I'm still trying to figure out my faith. But I would say based on the prophets and the Old Testament and these hundreds of prophecies about Messiah, I think if you're a Jew and you're contemplating choosing Jesus, you're not converting. I would say you're continuing your faith, maybe completing your faith. You're fulfilling your faith. You have this huge advantage of the Torah and the prophet. I think God has hardwired Jews with a deep capacity for spirituality. 
In fact, I will say this, I'll say this. Here's the crazy thing. I know most Christians in the world today are non-Jewish Christians, but the greatest Christians have been Jewish Christians. And I will say this, as a non-Jewish Christian, we're the B team. We're the junior varsity. God worked first and foremost to the Jews. If you're like me and you're a Gentile Christian and you're offended, get over it. Because that's what the Bible says. Romans chapter one, verse 16 is on the screen right now. Look at this powerful verse penned by the Apostle Paul. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation for everyone. Don't miss that, everyone. This Jesus freedom is for everyone. Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave or free, black, brown, white, it, it doesn't matter. This is open for you. Whether you're messy, you're ethical, your background, your baggage, it is for everyone. Who believes? But look at who believes? First for the first for the Jew. See, God's chosen people. God's been wor working redemptively since the time of Abraham through the Jewish nation. So the A team is the then for the Gentile. So if you're a Jew and you think you know, coming to Christ means you're converting, I would say I, I don't think you are. In fact, based on the scripture, again, for decades, Christians were just seen as a subset of Judaism, an expression of Judaism. Uh, Jesus is the savior of the world and the son of God, but first and foremost, he's the Jewish Messiah and the redemption of Israel. And so I think you're doing something that's very natural for a Jew. You're the 18. In fact, you might not know this, if you're like me, a non-Jewish Christian, the question was in the church for the first decades in the book of Acts, was can someone like me, a non-Jew, even choose to be a Jesus follower without first converting to Judaism? There's a large group of early Christians that thought for someone like me to get saved, uh, before I choose Jesus, I have to choose to follow the Torah and Mosaic law as a grown Gentile man go through circumcision before anybody had invented anesthesia. I mean, that's a big deal. And it wasn't until the council in Jerusalem recorded in Acts chapter 15 with the leaders of the church, all Jews, by the way, said, no, no, we're not gonna trouble Gentiles with that because everyone's saved the same, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, we're all saved by trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. So whether you call him your Messiah, your savior, your God or your friend, he's the pathway. So if you wanna be saved right now, the clearest verse in salvation is this, it's Romans 10, nine on the screen. Right now, it says you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be. And saved means qualified for heaven. It means the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. But you know what it really means? It means free. It's free from your sin and free from your guilt and free from your preconceptions and free from racism. You're free, free to be accepted by God. So if you wanna get free, not converted, but free, Find a prayer partner when I say amen in like 30 seconds, or if you're watching online, just text the word salvation to the number you see on the screen right now, and a real live person will reach out to you. But I want to spend this time, again, if you're a Jew, I, I hope you hear my heart. It's, it's respect and esteem and admiration. Thank you that God has used you and your nation in such a powerful way in the world. You have become the agents and missionaries of God's grace, and the world's been blessed because of you. Father, thank you so much. The Bible. It's not two books, not the old book and the new book. It's not one covenant that makes the other covenant completely obsolete. No, it's a beautiful tapestry. And while we use our New Testament to understand what God is doing in the Old Testament, all of it's God's word. 
And Jew and Gentile alike, if we choose King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, we find favor and relationship with God. It's my prayer that someone would make that brilliant decision today in Jesus' name. And so we gather again next week after passing out invites to everyone we know. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today. To hear more messages like this, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Don't forget to stay connected with us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CBGlades at Pastor D. Hughes.